Have you ever felt defensive as a follower of Jesus? Defending your faith or defending your position or just defending your desire to do the right thing. Well, Paul is in that position. While this is a letter of comfort, we find the Apostle still a bit on the defense mode. You know, he did a lot of defending in 1 Corinthians. He really, actually more than being on the defensive, he was on the offensive in much of 1 Corinthians. But now in 2 Corinthians, while he's so much more about comfort and the love, he still is in defense mode to a degree. We'll see that some tonight. Why defend himself? You know, some people defend themselves anytime they're confronted or challenged. They just have to defend themselves. They, they can't not defend themselves. This isn't about Paul. Understand that Paul goes on self-defense mode to defend the legitimacy of his pioneering work in Corinth. That what matters here is not Paul's reputation, but the reputation of the gospel in it being planted in the church at Corinth. And so it does matter how it was started and where it came from. And that the Lord did, in fact, speak through and use Paul. And so much of what we just consider biblical doctrine today was being taught for the first time at that time. So Paul was sure to defend that which was right. And to be sure that the people at Corinth, because there were still some at Corinth who were questioning his credentials, who were challenging his credibility... And so Paul is clear with them, look, this is not of me, this is of the Lord. And I was right in bringing it to you. And you yourselves know. In fact, what he does now is offer up his best defense. And his best defense is his own personal letter of commendation. Verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we, as some, need letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, Paul says, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That is Paul's best defense. You want to know if if this church was founded through me by the Lord? Look at yourselves. The very fact that you're there, that you're a church fellowship, that you love Jesus is all the letter I need. I don't have to prove myself to you. Look around. You are the proof, he's saying. Now, I I love this passage and how he, he goes down this road because this is the indelible power of the gospel. This is what so often people in the rest of the world don't understand about Christianity, true Christianity. What the business world doesn't get and what the political world doesn't understand. And even the religious world doesn't get it. That Christianity is, is not carved, etched, penned, or inscribed. It is written by the Spirit of Jesus into the hearts of people. It's not a document So much that you can show, oh, I understand we have the Word of God in the Scriptures, but the work of the Spirit and the proof of the Spirit's work is always in the heart. It's always in a person's life. And that's why no country can put it down. No nation can stop the move of the Holy Spirit because He works with human hearts. He doesn't just work on parchment. And Paul says, this is the deal, Corinth. You are our letter. Just as Jesus writes into the hearts of all people. And a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus, is not one who's been sold a bill of goods. You know, baited and switched into buying something he or she does not truly want. The proof of the work of the Spirit of God is a changed heart. Just remember that as as we go through tonight. A 19th century English painter and author, a man by the name of Walter Goodman, said it this way. He said, the salesman himself is often the ultimate sucker who has fallen for his own cheesy bill of goods. He's selling it because he believes into it, because he was suckered into it himself. Could that be the Christian? Is it possible that 
That you follow Jesus simply because you've been sold a bill of goods and now you have to sell it just to prove to yourself that it's legitimate. (laughs) I think you know better. Look back at verse 16 of chapter 2. What did Paul say? He says, who is adequate for these things? We are not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You see, you can't offer a changed heart unless you have one. So you're not selling anything that can be done without the Spirit of God. When you share the Gospel with someone, when you share Jesus with someone, when you talk about Him with someone else, you're speaking from a changed heart with the prayerful desire that God is now going to change that other person's heart. So it's not salesmanship. And you're not trying to prove to yourself what you believe. Our greatest confidence in Jesus Christ is not what the church has done in the world. It's what Jesus has done in me. Or in your case, in you. Verse 4 of chapter 3. Paul says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Are you alive in Christ? Or are you dying by the law. Paul talks about adequacy here. You know, all legalistic religion does is make you feel inadequate. That's what religion does. If you've ever sat in church and felt like you weren't good enough, that's because of a religious spirit. That's because of an an attitude that says, "I, I can't measure up. That guy down the row obviously knows the words of the songs better than I do. He must be more holy. She's able to turn to the passage faster than I am. He looks better. She smells better. And suddenly, we're in this religious place and we feel inadequate. The letter kills. The letter of the law kills with inadequacy. 613 laws in the law of Moses and you cannot keep them. That's the point, right? But people feel inadequate. Hayden and I were driving home. Another one of our conversations, it's one of my favorite times with him is when we're driving because we just talk. And we were driving and, and he asked me a question. He said, Dad, i got to ask you something about the Old Testament. I'm like, okay, my ears pierce up. You know, if it's a Bible question, I'm in. What? The pork laws. Do we have to keep the pork laws? I mean, the Bible says they weren't supposed to eat pork, and here we are today, and obviously we eat pork because I know we got bacon in the fridge. So what's the deal with that? Do we keep it or not? Is it just now obsolete? And I said, well, Hayden, great question. But understand, first of all, that the pork law, <laughs> kosher law, the dietary laws, were all a part of the law of Moses. Not the whole Old Testament as we know it, One covenant, a covenant made by God with the Jewish people, not with all mankind. So it doesn't apply beyond Israel, first of all, understand that. But that's only half the answer. I said, Hayden, why was the law given? The law of Moses. And he said something to the effect of because God chose his people. And I said, yeah, but why give them the law? And you Bible students know, Romans 5.20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You might say the law came in to reveal our inadequacy. That we are not adequate to keep the law. But now Paul says, such confidence we have through Christ, that our adequacy is from God. He's already shown us that we can't be adequate in and of ourselves, adequate to keep the perfect law. But now in Jesus we have been made adequate. I struggle with this all my life. No one explained this to me. That the law was not the great plan A or the great try that failed. So God had to come up with something else. No, it was the great tutor that led us to Jesus. Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, our schoolmarm, if you will. To lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. 
What Paul's doing, and I hope you catch this here, is he is steamrolling inadequacy in the church. There's no such thing as an inadequate Christian. There is no such thing as an inadequate follower of Jesus Christ. Is that comforting to you? Because it is to me. To know that my adequacy doesn't come from me, but comes from God Himself. Turn back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. In verse 16. And I'm just going to give you one example of this and how this played out. And how that God didn't have plan A that failed, so He had to go then to plan B. This was the plan all along. To show us that He would provide that adequacy, that competency, that confidence for us. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 16. And just follow along as I read through this. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Notice those two words. Their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to what? Their ways and their deeds. I judged them. Verse 20, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them... These are the people of the Lord, yet they've come out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Even when they were kicked out of the land, they were inadequate. Even among the nations, they showed themselves to be inadequate to be the people of God which they were called to be. And so they profaned God's holy name. God says, do you see? Now it's not just Israel that gets it, but the whole world sees that no one can keep this, this law of God. No one can be adequate to the cause. What, what a failure, you might say, but he continues. Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Oh, wow, this really wasn't about mankind, was it? From the very beginning, it's always been about God. It's always been about vindicating His holiness, His name. Verse 24, For I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Remember the letter? Paul's letter of commendation? It's written on the heart. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so you will all be my people and I will be your God. You see what he does. It's marvelous. He gives the law, which they were inadequate to keep. Then he says, I'm going to give you a new heart, pour my spirit into you, and you're going to keep my law because I'm going to keep it through you. The perfect law of God will be kept by Israel, I believe, in the millennial kingdom flawlessly because the spirit will be in the people. And God will prove himself to be holy. Now go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The point is this, and this is again one of so many passages in the Hebrew Scriptures we could have gone to. But Israel is the proof. The Jewish people in history are the proof that the letter of the law kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. And you can hear it in the urgings of Jesus Himself. He said in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. And you are unwilling to come to Me 
so that you may have life. If you just try to live by the Scriptures, but you never come to Jesus, it will kill you. Because you can't do it. You have to have His Spirit. But once you have His Spirit, suddenly the Scriptures do breathe life and joy and and peace. They're, They're fantastic. They're marvelous. You're here tonight because you understand the value of God's Word. But without the Spirit, it's just heavy. It's a letter that kills. So our adequacy, Paul says, our confidence, it's not from self. It's from Christ who gives us real life. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And he says, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Get this, the contrast is beautiful. The law, the law that kills because it's too perfect to be kept, the law came with glory. Right? Glory of God on the mountain. Moses comes down, he's got the law, the law comes with glory. But the Spirit remains and reigns in glory. There's with. Glory was there. The giving of the law and the covenant. But the glory is in Christ Jesus. Such a radical difference. Moses comes down the mountain. Think about this. Paul's about to use this as kind of the whole picture in the rest of the chapter. He receives the law. The people were below the mountain. The mountain was smoking and rumbling. Fire was atop the mountain. It glowed. And then Moses comes down. And he glows. And I don't know how that works or what that looked like. But I can guarantee you it wasn't like Charlton Heston's beard growing longer each time. Long white fake beard. No, his face glowed to the point, to the degree that it freaked the people out. That they saw this. Moses comes down out of the presence of God and he literally lit up with glory. Exodus 34, let me just read it to you. Exodus 34, 29. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. God's glory got on Moses. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. Why did they return to him? Because they ran away. (laughs) And Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out, and whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So here's the question. Why did Moses veil his face? Why did he veil his face? I'll give you two reasons right up front. I think there's more. But the first two are this. First of all, as I've already said, the people couldn't face the glory on his face. It freaked them out. It frightened them. It was unnerving. This, this, this glow. I mean, this is glow stick Moses. What's going on here? It's not like anything they'd ever seen. And so they were uncomfortable with it, so he would put the veil over it. That's one reason. Another reason is perhaps because Moses couldn't keep the glory on his face. He couldn't keep it. The longer he was away from the divine presence of God, the more the glory faded. And so he would go back up the mountain and be in the presence of the Lord and he'd be lit up again. You know, when I was a kid, I had a little cross. 
about that big, and I bought it in a Christian bookstore. A little glow-in-the-dark cross. Remember those things? They were white, and, and then you'd take them and hold them up to the light bulb. This is what we did before video games. You know, hold it up to the light bulb and then turn off all the lights and it would just glow green, a little green cross. It was really kind of creepy, actually. That was Moses. But those crosses, after a while, would get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. You'd have to turn the light back on, stick it up to the light bulb again. Same idea. Moses was like that glowing cross. Just a, a glowing man go before the Lord, light up, and he'd really glow, and then it would fade and go away. And Paul says back in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Moses was losing it. And Paul says, get this, you're not like that. We are not like Moses. Bit by bit, a little at a time, greatest prophet in Israel could not maintain the glorious overflow of God. So it was only the people's, it wasn't only the people's fear of the glory, but it was perhaps maybe Moses' fear of the fading glory. Moses concerned that the glory was going away and he didn't want him to see it. Have you ever been there? What do you mean? I mean, Sunday morning at 10.05, you are lit up if you're at first service. You know, 11.45, 12 o'clock, if you come to second service, you're lit up. But by the time the game's over, the glory's gone, man. Especially last Sunday. Life comes back in and the glory goes away. I feel so holy in the presence of the saints singing worship to God. But the further out I get from Sunday, and see, you're wise. You're here Wednesday night because the glory's fading. You've got to get more, right? We've got to get lit up again. And then we'll just go a few more days and we'll be back together on Sunday. Well, that's not how it works, followers of Jesus. That's how it worked for Moses. But not for us. You see, the glory fades... And the flesh creeps in, and the enemy whispers, Inadequate. You're inadequate. You're not good enough. Followers of Jesus, we are not like Moses. We have no fading glory. Nothing to be ashamed of. You see, rather than bearing the burden of the law that was given with glory, we have the message of grace that is given in glory. It's glorious whether I'm glowing or not. The gospel is always glorious. Jesus is always glorious. His grace is always the stuff of glory, whether I feel like it or not. And if Jesus Christ is in me, then the glory in Him is in me. It does not fade away. My adequacy doesn't go away. Well, then why do I feel inadequate? Because we're still in the skin. But it doesn't go away. And it's a lie of the enemy to think that we fade and we get less. No, it's actually the opposite. Maybe to be fair, I'm, I'm judging Moses a little harshly here that he covered his face so that they wouldn't see the glory fading away. There may be another aspect to this, and it's the third reason why this veil gets stuck over his face. Look at verse 13 again. He says, We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Maybe the problem was that the people were focusing on the wrong thing. And so Moses said, I'm going to veil my face because I don't want them looking at this. I don't want them considering this false glow of glory. I want them considering the Lord. I want them looking to the Lord. And remember, I think that's probably more accurate with Moses because he said of himself that there was no more humble man on the face of the earth. I'm not sure how you say that about yourself, but he did. He wrote that. So maybe he veiled himself because they were getting so fixated on the glory on his face that they were missing the glory of the living God. Verse 14, Paul says, Their minds were hardened. 
For until this very day of the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. We don't have a letter which kills. An unattainable, unachievable, unreachable law. We have been given the new covenant, which as Ezekiel told us, God would write on the heart. That He would replace that old stony heart like the stone of the Ten Commandments. He would replace it with a heart of flesh that's beating and pumping blood. And in Jesus Christ, and I love what He says in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil's gone. The veil of fear Fearing the glory of God, perhaps because of sin in my life. And the veil of fading glory. Well, that goes away too. I no longer worry about, well, do I look as Christian as I did a half hour ago? The veil of wrong focus. Rather than being focused on individuals in the church or other Christians, I'm focused on Jesus. And it's a completely different thing. Man, don't look at me. Look at Him. Look at Jesus Christ. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. I love that verse. He has explained Him. I told you, when we study John, the word explained is exegeomai. It's where we get our Bible study word exegesis. And exegesis means to break down the passage, to study it, to understand it in its entirety. Not to read into it, but to speak the Word of God and to understand it as written. And so Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He explains God as He is. And so we look to Jesus. Verse 16 again. Whenever the person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. Liberty. In Jesus and by the Spirit of Christ, we have ultimate freedom. The freedom that our country continues to clamor for, or to say that we desire, or say that we want, does not hang on the presidential campaigns. Our freedom is in Christ and in Christ alone. And it's perfect freedom. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. And if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And get this, freedom in Christ Jesus, transformational. Transformational. A changed heart. Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. From glory to glory simply means with ever-increasing glory. That as God glorifies and sanctifies you today, He's not going to backslide the glory and have to redo that process. He takes you from glory to glory in ever-increasing measure of glory. That's marvelous. But he also says that we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now what does that mean? He's saying we are beholding the glory of God, get this, indirectly. Because as God told Moses to look directly into the glorious face of God would just kill us. And so He found a way that we might see Him indirectly. How's that? Through Jesus Christ in human flesh. Jesus now puts on flesh. God puts on flesh to dwell among us. And get this, as we behold Jesus, as we, as in a mirror, we behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ, simply by beholding Him in belief, we are transformed. We are changed from glory to glory, from one stage to the next. Beholding Jesus is the key. Hold that thought. 
chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We just don't lose heart. Why? Because the grace of God is written on the heart. He's given us a new heart. And so we are not, Paul says, those who walk in craftiness. We don't adulterate the Word of God. That is, we don't have to change it to fit our particular denominational style. We're not out there trying to sell it. We're not manipulators. There is a manipulator. But we're not like that. Do you realize that the church is unlike any other business model in history? I don't even like using the word business model. I've heard that many times in in church meetings, to be honest. What's the business model? I don't really care what your business model is. We are not sellers. We're not businessmen. We're not planners. We're prayers. We're not managers. We are ministers, servants. We're not directors, we're devotees of the Spirit of God. We are not business people. We are beholders of Christ. And that is hard to get. That is hard to get because what we tend to do, and I am absolutely guilty of this, we tend to get our hands into the affairs of the church And we knee-jerk ourselves into problems right and left. We complicate everything that can be, should be, very simple. Because we start to shift into the business mode of the world. And Paul says, that's not the way we are. By the manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, we just walk in the light as he is in the light. That's what John wrote. It's a completely different thing. Which is why in our shepherds meetings it's so weird that we spend the bulk of the time in prayer. It's so weird that the first person hired on staff in a pastoral role at the Bridge Fellowship was a pastor of prayer. Should have been an administrator. No, we needed prayer. He's still on staff as a pastor of prayer. I don't even know what he does. I kid. But that's the heart. And I share this with with you, my brothers and sisters, that we would always remember, this is who we are. This is how we were founded. Tonight as we were all gathered around and we're praying and and, and worshiping, and, uh, and there was some quiet there, you know. Rachel's playing the keys a little bit, trying to fill up the space just enough so we don't get too uncomfortable. And what came to me was, I shared it with Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Well, what businessman has time to wait? What business meeting? I mean, we got an hour to get it done. Get in, get out. Make the plan, the agenda, set it, go, do your jobs. And that's not how the church is to work. And yet when the church tries to work that way, everything goes upside down. See, this is what I think about when I go on vacation for a week. (laughs) It's just such a different thing. It needs to be. A different kind of people who, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, so if we're doing all these things, we're just loving the Lord, we're worshiping God, we are in prayer together, we are caring for one another, we are seeking His will, His agenda, and if He's not giving us a will and agenda, we don't do anything until He does. And we're waiting on the Lord, and while all this is going on, you know what? People might not even see anything happening. They may look at the bridge and go, what are those people doing? What are they waiting for? Get busy. Get to work. And so for some, the gospel seems to be failed. Paul says that. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
In whose case, watch this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now Paul is obviously talking about the non-believer here. You know, who is veiled. Why doesn't someone believe in Jesus if they haven't made a faith decision for Jesus? Because the veil's there. Remember what he already said, the veil is removed when you turn to the Lord. There is a moment, there's that split second of decision of of faith where you say, I'm going to believe, and he rips the veil off and suddenly you now can see. But the non-believer has this covering, this, this veil, this bogus burqa, you know, that just keeps you from really seeing well. And, and that's the non-believer, but my friends, I think we all have experienced this as believers as well. The return of the veil. Fear. The veil of fear. The, the veil of misfocus. The veil of the fading glory. And that's a big one in the church, which is why I spent a little bit of time on it. The veil of fading glory. That fear that I am not looking as spiritual this week as I did last week. So we throw on the mask as quickly as possible, but when you look in the mirror, guess what the mask is? It is a veil. Jesus wants to remove the veil. Satan wants to return the veil and blind you so that you cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is a businessman. He is in the business of manipulation. He is seeking to undermine every single thing that we do. Jesus came along and called Satan the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11. He says it three times in that Thursday night discourse before his crucifixion. Satan is the ruler of this world. Here, Paul says that he is the God of this world. Notice the word world there is eon. In other words, he's the God of this age. He is the, he's running the business of this age. Running counter to that, surreptitiously, is the church. By the power of the Spirit. In a way that Satan cannot stop, and it, and it galls him. It unnerves him. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. The old windbag. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that's Satan. And his whole plan is to blind. But note the contrast in verse 4. While Satan is the god of this age, or of this world, Jesus... Jesus, in verse 4, is the image, literally the icon in Greek, of God. The perfect representation is what that word means. He reveals to us God. Icon is likeness. He is in the likeness of God. He is having the same form as God. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago through the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation. That phrase, you know what that word is in the Greek? Character. He's the character of God. Character? The nature. He is God in the flesh. Absolutely. Jesus is, once again, as Paul said, He's the very explanation of God. Satan tries to drop the veil, tries to blind. Jesus removes the veil every time you turn to Him. So even as a believer, if you find yourself failing, feeling inadequate, uh, fearing, again, focused on the wrong things, or that fading glory, any of that going on as a believer, that veil's coming up. How do you get rid of it? Look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. Turn your gaze once again to the Lord. You want to see God? It's one of my favorite lines out of the first Indiana Jones movie. You know, he's sitting across the, across the table from Belloc, that other archaeologist, and the archaeologist is saying, don't you understand that, that we, as archaeologists, we can dig these things up and, and we can, as it were, talk to God. And Indiana Jones goes, you want to talk to God? 
Let's go see Him together. I got nothing better to do. (laughs) Hey man, you want to see God? You don't have to do it Indiana Jones way. Three times in this letter, Paul is now connecting what we might call optical verbs with optical objects. Note this, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding, there's your optical verb, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. That's the object. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, he says again, so that they might not see, there's your optical verb, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's the object. Beholding the glory. Seeing the glory. And in chapter 4, verse 6. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 before we get there. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He has shown in our hearts to see what? The glory of God. So three times here, Paul repeats this theme, this idea. How do you see God? How do you see the glory of God? You behold Jesus. You behold Jesus. You behold Jesus. He is the key to our entire faith walk. I know I talk about this all the time. Do you know why? Because there's nothing else to talk about. Because Jesus is the sum total of the whole thing. And that as we behold Jesus, we behold God. Proverbs 15.30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And so if the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is filling up my eyes, my heart rejoices. Jesus said in Matthew 6.22, He said, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, note this, we become like the one we behold from glory to glory. The more you look to Jesus, the more you behold Jesus, the more I see Jesus, the more I am transformed to become like Him. And don't get me wrong, never to replace Him, never to be raised up as a little mini-God myself, that would be a terror. No, we are transformed and we become more and more like Him until we see Him and we will be like Him because John says we will see Him as He is. So you behold Jesus, you look to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, to the author and finisher of our faith. Last week I got... Uh, the recent Israel My Glory magazine, which, by the way, is a really good publication. If you still like to get magazines, I don't know very many people who do anymore, I guess, but Israel My Glory comes every two months, and, and so I open it up, I'm reading through it, and it's their November-December edition, and it's talking about the, a lot of Christmas things and the birth of Jesus, and it, it's a great, a great magazine. But I came to this one article entitled, God Is... And I, I read the, the subtitle, the heading that was talking about it, and it says this. Although we will never grasp God in His eternity, we can still learn about Him through three things in particular. His attributes, His actions, and His nature. And then the article goes on to theologically explain how we can understand something of a God that we cannot understand. I'm like one paragraph into it, and I said out loud, what about Jesus? I don't, you know, I used to do this. I spoke several years ago at a youth conference. All these teenagers showed up for a summer youth conference, and I I showed up, and, and my topic was the infinite God. And I got up there, and I think I said something really dumb, like I talked about his his nature, and I talked about his attributes and his actions, trying to describe God, and I felt completely miserable the whole time, because I wasn't even coming close, trying to describe that which is indescribable. And if I was asked to give that same teaching today, I would stand up and I would say, Jesus Christ, you want to know God, you look at Jesus. That's it. Now, to be fair, in the Israel My Glory magazine, ultimately they got down to Jesus, and they mentioned Him a few times in the article. But to me, I'm thinking, God is Jesus. Explained by Jesus, revealed through Jesus. 
And I think the issue for us as his followers is, what are we fixing our eyes on? What are you beholding on your day-to-day life? I mean, if you're beholding the Seahawks, you're going to have a lot of blue and green in your closet. You're going to become more and more of a Seahawks lover. But if you're beholding Jesus, now it's in your closet. (laughs) Now it's in your wallet. Behold Jesus and you become like Jesus. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, John said. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is the single defining factor of all of the apostles, of all the disciples, and of every follower of Jesus down 2,000 years that they beheld Christ. And so do we. And that's what changes us. And by the way, it seems to me sometimes that, that in Christian churches we have Jesus as the man of the hour. We'll do a special talk this Sunday on Jesus, but then we'll get back to other things. Because there are so many things, you know, that we have. And this is, you know, it is the word of life. We find life here, so we've got to talk about all these other things. He's not the man of the hour, my friends. He's not the flavor of the month, and he is not just the reason for the season. Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. My point is this. Behold Him. Behold Him. And you are being transformed from glory to glory. Now, verse 7. Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. He's underscoring what he's just said. It's not about your adequacy. It is Him. It is all that God does. It's all Jesus making me adequate. And we oftentimes study, we've looked at this passage before uh, several times. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. It spawned a Christian pop group, Jars of Clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure? Well, what Paul just said. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so when you give your life to Jesus, He enters you. He takes up residence. The Father and I will make our abode with you, He said. So we have this treasure, the face of Christ, the glory of Christ. Christ in me is the treasure... And this is the balance of God's glory at work. And it's, it's just marvelous how this works. This remarkable treasure, this glorious revelation in this limited body. In this fallible, flawed human form. The glory of God in me. Such that sometimes the glory of God is hard to see if I'm looking at me. You know... I don't know how many times over the years I've shared the looking in the mirror in the morning analogy, but it works every time, right? You look in the mirror in the morning and you're not seeing Jesus, you're just seeing, wow. Okay, how long do I have to fix this? Christ in me, the glory, but in this limited body. Why? So that we would learn to trust in His strength, to lean on His power. As Psalm 103 tells us, He knows our frame, that we are dust. We're dust. He knows how frail we truly are. But, He says, Psalm 103.17, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. So Paul says, we get it, we're aware that we have this treasure, but we also know we are earthen vessels. Check this out, verse 9 he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. What a startling contrast all of a sudden. Paul has been talking about the glory of the Lord and this bright, brilliant theme The wonder of beholding Christ, how magnificent it is to be transformed from glory to glory, and all of a sudden smacks us in the face with this stark contrast of our earthen 
vessels under duress. And I love the way he puts this back and forth. This rhetorical list is considered to be among Paul's finest. He says, we are afflicted, but not crushed. Literally, those two words literally mean pressed, squeezed, but not flattened. I like that. No, Yeah, we're pressed. Afflicted is the same word that's used for tribulation, flipsis. Here it's phlebo. And it literally means that we're being pressed from all sides, Paul says, in this physical frame. But we don't end up flattened by it. There's a strength there. This treasure in these jars of clay. But we're perplexed, but not perplexed. Totally. He, he uses an interesting word twice here, with a slight variation in the word. Now, I won't say, you don't need to hear the word, but... Basically, he says, we're puzzled, but not totally puzzled. (laughs) Do you ever feel that way? I I mean, are you ever at a loss as to what God is doing? What's what's God's will for your life? What's He doing in your life right now? And you kind of (laughs) go, I have no idea. I really don't. I'm puzzled. I've been praying. I've been seeking His will. I'm not getting anything. So right now, I don't know. Paul says we're like that all the time. We're puzzled, but not totally puzzled. What do you mean, Paul? I mean, we don't despair. I may not know what God is doing right now, but I know who God is. I may know, not know what Jesus is up to, but I know Jesus. And so whether I know what the next step is, or how He's going to pull this together, or how He's going to make this work, or how He's going to salvage this situation, I may not know that. But I know Jesus. I know Him. And He may not have fixed the mess that I've made in my life, but I know Him. And I trust Him. So I may be puzzled, but I'm not totally puzzled. I'm not at a loss. As Paul says in Romans 5.5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. What does that mean? That word persecuted is also translated suffering. Yeah, we suffer. Yeah, we go through hard times. But we are not forsaken. In other words, yes, you suffer, but never alone. Never alone. But I feel alone. I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did at first. When they were tossed into the furnace, Daniel chapter 3, long about verse 21, suddenly we discover (laughs) there's a fourth man walking around in the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, You might want to take a look at this. Guy walking around. How many did we throw in there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, I'm counting four, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. You know why? Because he was the son of God. So while they were being persecuted, they were not alone, and neither are you. What a great comforting word. And then finally Paul says, struck down, but not destroyed. The phrase struck down means felled as with a weapon. You're in the midst of warfare, you're fighting a bloody battle, out comes the sword, and next thing you know, you're cut, you're bleeding, you lose a limb. You fall to your knees in pain. You've been felled, but you're still breathing, man. You're still alive, woman. You're still fighting the battle. You're okay. You're in it. Yeah, yeah, but 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 what if I what if I'm killed? Luke twelve four. I say to you, my friends, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, they have no more that they can do. <laughs> What's the worst they can do to me? Kill me. Okay. Guess what? I'm not destroyed. I go on into eternity with Jesus. That's fantastic. Paul's perspective on the warfare in which we are engaged is such that, man, once I know that I'm eternal and I'm in the eternal hands of God, whatever happens to this body is of no consequence. Bring it on. And note this. In the list that he gives here, in these... Uh, antitheses 
were afflicted but not crushed, perplexed not despairing, persecuted not forsaken, struck down not destroyed. Notice it gets increasingly intense with each one. Until the last one, he's talking about literally the threat to physical life. You may even be felled on the battlefield, but you're not destroyed. And he says this about himself. This list, as it increases, understand that to the one beholding Jesus, in this case Paul himself, has great comfort. Because the more intense my life gets as I follow Jesus, the more beautiful He is. The more clear He is, the more I see Him. It's like Stephen as he's being stoned. Looks up in Acts chapter 7 and he points and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw Jesus more clearly in the moment before He died than in any time in His life. Beholding Jesus. And then the Bible tells us in Acts 7 that He fell asleep. I love that. Not that a stone finally took him out. That final stone hit his temple and down he went. No. He saw Jesus standing up for him, by the way. And Stephen went to sleep. And as our Christian faith walk intensifies, and as the persecution gets stronger, and for some of us it will, that vision of Christ becomes more and more and more clear until we're just beholding Him in the clouds face to face. I think that's why older Christians have less trouble with death than younger Christians. Younger people who, as a friend of mine recently said, are very comfortable in their body. You know, they're they're really kind of stuck in this physical body and in this physical world and very comfortable here. And I can tell you, in my life, the older I get, the more I'm not really concerned about this. I have to remember that. Because there are times where I'm talking about the rapture of the church. Talking about the coming of Jesus. And I see people's faces lighting up like like Jim's just did. I see the smile come on and, and I resonate with that. What sometimes I miss are some of our teenagers going, Oh man, that scares me. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. But I I still have things I want to do. Things I want to experience. Don't take me there yet. You know, if you behold Jesus, whether you're a, you're a teenager and you're beholding Jesus and you're looking at Him and you're trusting in Him, hey, good. He's going to take care of it. Or if you're my age and you're looking at Jesus saying, the sooner I can be with you, the better as far as I'm concerned. Just keep beholding Jesus. What verse are we even on here? Verse 10. Always, Paul says, carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Very simply, the dying of Jesus speaks of the crucifixion and the life of Jesus speaks of the resurrection. And Paul says, that's what we carry around. I carry around constantly with me the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection. It's the gospel. And I experience that in my body. Man, if I'm struck down, if I'm stoned, if I'm whipped, if I'm beaten, if I'm thrown out of town, Paul would say, it's the dying of Jesus. Praise the Lord. I'm a step closer to being like Him in His crucifixion. But if after that stoning, I get up and I shake it off and I walk back into town as Paul did, (laughs) I'm carrying around with me the living of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection. And Paul takes this comment even a step further when he writes to Philippi he says for me to live as Christ and to die as gain Philippians 1.21 he says if I'm to live on in the flesh swimming fruitful labor for me I do not know which one to choose I'm hard pressed in both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that's very much better and yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake he says to Philippi so I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. Because if He wants to take me home, hallelujah. And if He wants me to stay here, praise God. There's still work to be done. Verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul is very sensitively saying, yeah, it's hard out here. It's tough. It's difficult. 
But we just keep beholding Jesus. And either way, whether we behold Him in His crucifixion or behold Him in His resurrection, we're preaching the Gospel and it's all good. Verse 13, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Now very quickly, he quotes here. You may note this in your in your Bibles. It's... It's written differently there. I believe, therefore I spoke. That's a quote. It's Psalm 116. Why does Paul tap this very specifically? Psalm 116 is the psalm of a dying man. It is a quote that's taken right out of the middle of what are called the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Psalms of praise, psalms of glory to God. And smack in the middle of it is the psalm of the dying man. And we believe it was probably written by Hezekiah. You may remember the story, 2 Kings chapter 20, Isaiah 38. Hezekiah gets sick. And Isaiah the prophet is sent to him, and in 2 Kings 20 it says, Isaiah said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then we're told that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Well, that sounds pretty holy. Thing is, when you read his journal, which is reproduced in Isaiah 38, verse 14, it's a little different. He writes, like a swallow, like a crane, I twitter, I moan like a dove, my eyes look wistfully to the heights, O Lord, I am oppressed, be my security. He's twittering like a bird. He's tweeting like Trump. His response is not turning to the wall and, Oh, Lord God, thou art so good. No, he starts crying and weeping. I'm going to die. God, save me. He tweets like a bird. He chirps. He's crying out to the Lord. But at least he's twittering in the right direction. You know, if you're going to tweet anyone, tweet God. And that's what he's doing. He is speaking to God. And what does he say? Psalm 116, verse 10, what Paul quotes. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Interesting. Paul leaves that off. Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. And then he doesn't finish the phrase. Why not? Well, a good teacher sometimes will leave things for the students to figure out on their own. And the rest of the phrase, I believe, therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. What does that mean? It means in his affliction, Hezekiah had faith that God was going to do something. He believed when he spoke. It's the confident cry of a believer in God. Hezekiah believed in the righteous rescue of God. And Paul here claims that same rescue. Verse 14 saying, we also believe. Verse 13, therefore we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. I love that. Worst case scenario, Paul says. We're struck down and we don't get back up on this earth. God's going to present us. Jesus has us. Verse 15, for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading more and more to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How's that, Paul? He might say, from glory to glory. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction... Which is funny coming through Paul. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Glory to glory transformation. Changing everything. Jesus changes my heart. And then he changed my perspective and my life and my faith and my behavior. Everything starts to change as I'm being transformed. What is my part in it? To behold Jesus. To keep my eyes on Jesus. To come back to Jesus. If I'm sick like Hezekiah, to turn and Twitter Jesus. 
If I'm, if I'm worried, if I'm fearful, if that veil's starting to come down, remember, it's removed in Jesus. I behold Jesus. And note this, verse 15. Let me read this one more time. He says, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul says, grace is spreading. How is grace spreading, Paul? By the letter of Christ. And you are the letter of Christ. You are that letter signed by the blood of Jesus. Sealed by the Spirit of Jesus and delivered through the lives of His people. 